I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello. Thanks so much for coming back and joining me for Act 2 of my conversation with the great John Douglas Thompson. Uh, Without further ado, here he is. Here's John. Gentlemen of the Stage Door Johnny Company, this is your Act 2 beginner's call. Mr. Thompson and Mr. Cake to the stage, please. This is your beginner's. Now legendary among theatre audiences for his interpretations of classical material. Legendary, Joel. (laughs) Is his own philharmonic of well-tuned instruments. His voice at a rumble or a rasp glides from line to line and feeling to feeling. He turns Shakespeare's flurries and puzzles of language into seemingly inevitable verbal outpourings of unknowable internal processes. His face, similarly, is a map of emotions. Before he speaks, his brows churn and his mouth searches. Whatever he says next has been looked for and somewhere deep in the soul (laughs) found. How does hearing something like that make you feel? I mean, I could have read any one of (laughs) 20 of these kind of Things that you read about, sort of, I don't know, Edmund Key. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Richard Eyre said to me that Garrison Keillor described that no reviews were good enough. He said, really, the only review anybody really wants to read is, Arise, O Sun King. You are our rightful ruler. <laughs> That's the ultimate But it turns review. out, yeah. this is Arise, O Sun King. You are our ruler. <laughs> it's always flattering, of course. If it helps get people to come to the theater to see the show, then it's worth it, you know, in that sense. I don't know if I'm all those things, you know, maybe that's what someone got from a performance. I can't step into their heads. I certainly don't think of myself in that way whatsoever. I don't look at the voice that I have as some sort of fine-tuned instrument or something that I've worked on. I look philharmonic. Yeah, like, (laughs) what is that, right? But I look at the plays, these Shakespeare plays, give me access to whatever this guy may be talking about to try to do without thinking about doing it, but going through a beautiful soliloquy that demands of the actor to show many different sides of themselves because the issue at large that they're talking about has many different aspects to it. And you do, I mean, I see you do this all the time. I mean, the reason why I was able to follow Coriolanus is a dense play. But the reason why I was able to follow it was what you gave to the character, not just in the physical representation, but it's intellectual. It's like the guy's really smart and very facile with language, right? Not book smart, not like studious smart, but just observant. He's seeing the world. He's seeing the, the extremity of man, and he can comment on it and see it for what it is and tell you what it is. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. And so in the process of doing that, what I get from you is is a fine-tuned instrument who's just basically, you know, like the the, the cello, you know what I mean? Uh, 
the instrument that is played and gives you many different notes all in one, right? I think it's the work that makes that level right. accessible to the artist you've done, and then to the audience. You've done very well to turn that round <laughs> to me. Nicely done. Listen, you, you worked with our great friend Aaron five times. Yeah. You did a Scottish play, yeah. one of your seven Othellos, The Father by Strindberg, as we already said, Doll's House yeah. by Ibsen, and then we Merchant of Venice. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Now, what do you get from Aaron? What does she give you? Wow. You know, I think Aaron is a classy and graceful director. And what I mean by that is she's willing to let Shakespeare take the lead, particularly on Shakespeare. I've never worked with her where she's like, I have a concept that I'm going to put on top of Shakespeare to make Shakespeare better. No, she's really willing to let Shakespeare lead and to choose the actors that will also allow that so that we can all go on the same ride. Now, I also think she's incredibly smart, very intelligent, and she sees something else in the plays that maybe other people don't see. So she sees something on an emotional level that has not yet been explored that she's going to ask you as a company to start to look towards, to see if there's anything that's available there. So I don't get a standard approach to directing Shakespeare right. from Aaron. I get quite a novel approach because it's in plain sight. It's always been there. It just hasn't been exposed. And so even Aaron will say, like, I don't know why people don't actually open this door and look inside because it is open. There, You don't even need a key. Like, So I like that about her. So I know that she's going to trust Shakespeare and she has an idea, not necessarily an idea. She's willing to look in the what's hiding in plain sight and say how that can inform yeah. the play on an emotional and an intellectual level. And that's something quite beautiful. And I've worked with a lot of good Shakespeare directors. I, I hold Aaron in, in high esteem over all of them um, because she's willing to do the work in that. Yeah, that's brilliantly put. I've always felt that about it too, this extraordinary sense of being able to shine a spotlight yes. on all the corners of the place. Yes, and they've always and been there. Say, they've always been there. They've always been there. They've, it's not like, this is something new, like, oh my God, they've always been there. And then allowing a very subtle human approach in addressing it. Nothing, no pyrotechnics, nothing like, this is going to be simply solved through human interaction. And giving everybody their humanity. From the person who has one line to yes. whoever is carrying the burden of the story. I think yeah. she's as interested in what that one line has to offer to the totality of the world as the person who's driving the play. And I, again, that's, you're absolutely right. Yeah. You, you must share that in common because when you're talking so brilliantly about your process, it, it's that thing of it's all there. Yeah. How do I release, release myself it. into yes. it? Yes. And Aaron is exactly the same way. She has no snobbery about no. any aspects of a play, no preconceived, or no, no. it seems like no preconceived notions, just total curiosity just and appetite. Yeah. And that's so great for the actor because then yeah. there are so many ways in which you can release and, and access that, right? Yeah. There's just, listen, there's, there's, it's kind of a thing with, with many directors where you work towards, it's like a funnel system, right? I call Aaron the reverse funnel. It's a funnel system where you take all this stuff here and you're always doing this, right? To get it in to that point to go down. 
where with Aaron, I think we start from here yeah. and we just get bigger. And for an actor like myself, it gives me so many things to to play and to keep in my consciousness. So there's nothing that I come up with when I'm working with Aaron that I throw out. Even the bad stuff. Uh, I don't necessarily eliminate it as a choice because it has some relevance to the total picture. It can still exist. It may not be there on a Tuesday performance, but it may show up on a uh, on a Wednesday matinee. For me, that's a liberty and a freedom that I cherish and that I will continually come back to. And to get to do it with Shakespeare, I mean, to get to work with this great director, with this great playwright, for me, it doesn't get any better. You did a production of Endgame, production of Beckett's Endgame. Yes, I just did it with the great Bill Irwin. Yeah, yeah. with the great Bill Irwin, the great physical actor, clown. This is like being on stage with a dog, a baby, and a genius. <laughs> I, he is. I'm serious. He is. I, I can believe it. Yeah, I, He was a bucket list item like and I think yeah. it should be for every actor I saw him do to work with someone like Godot with, with Nathan Lane. I didn't yeah. see that production. He talked to me about that production. Right. So just to people who don't know it, the bulk of the play is about your character Ham, who is immobile yes. and sightless yeah. and his servant so, played by yes. Bill, who and they all can move. Dotty can his sit down. Right. You you decided to play him actually sightless yeah. yeah so you you got these glasses that you couldn't see a thing yeah totally blacked out matter of fact they gave them to me so i have them sitting in my samuel beckett's it was in my apartment but it made it really challenging because from day one you know most actors because we haven't come to the rehearsal off book right we need the page and we need to see it right so i said this is going to be challenging i'm going to have to memorize a certain amount at night, come in the next day, fully blind, no script, and do it that way. Because I cannot play blind and still see the script. And in addition, I didn't want to see what Bill was doing because he's so fucking hilarious <laughs> that I wouldn't be able to maintain my character. Right. So it was a twofold approach, but it's a big difference. Like if I'm, t I'm talking to you now with my eyes closed, there's just a difference in how, you know, I know you're there. I know there's a mic here. But there's a window, you know, I think because I can feel some light. But it's a difference versus if my eyes are open, I know you're there. I know this is there. So there's a, there's just a slight difference. And I wanted to work with that slight differentiation within the character. And truly, I never saw anything that Bill did. So it was truly like being blind to this person that's your servant. And you see the servant as this particular individual. Very different from the way the audience sees it, because the audience can literally see what Bill's doing. I don't know what he's doing. I just know he does what I ask him. So you rehearsed it blind too? Yeah. As much as you possibly yeah. could? Yeah, as much. I'd say 85%. And it, there's a lot of lines, says Ham. It's like a major Shakespeare character for sure. Sure. I got like 80% of the text in that play. And so to do it all with my eyes closed for the whole performance, so that's 90 minutes, from the time he rolls me out, and I never leave the stage. Yeah. And listen, a couple times, there were hearing aids that yeah. went off or phones that went off. I knew exactly where it was. Exactly. Because your sense was so yes, sharpened. right there. And I deliver some text in that direction <laughs> to make sure they knew that I knew that they were making noise and disrupting my process. And then there was one time, John, where a hearing aid went off. This was early in the process. 
and I forgot everything, all my lines. And I just started to fumble for like a minute, making up Beckett. And Bill was like, this is great, man. <laughs> you can make up Beckett. It all works. You know I mean? I was like, what the fuck? I said, I don't know any of this stuff. It's like, it worked, man. Don't worry about it. It totally worked. So how did you get yourself back? Well, I just, I knew there was a beginning point to the monologue. This is a five-page monologue that my character had. I knew there was a beginning. What I forgot was all the stuff after the beginning, the middle, and I knew the end. So I just played around with the middle, making things up. I mean, if Beckett was there, he would have fired me. If there was any Beckett people from the estate, they would have like, this cannot happen. But it was the kind of thing that I wasn't prepared to deal with because I'd been rehearsing it blind if I heard really sharp sounds that took my concentration from what I was doing. I didn't know how to get back to it. And that's because of the heightened sense, right? Absolutely. You were disturbed by that. So did it ever become comfortable? It sounds scary. Yes, it did. Because what I did after that night, I went home and I went over that five-page monologue a hundred times until I knew it backwards. And I said, this will never happen again. They may throw me off a line or a word, but not the whole story. And it was an important five-page story that gives relevance to the backstory for the character for Bill's character, for my character, for the family, for my two parents in the garbage bins, and also the future. So right. the audience needed to know aspects of this monologue to fill in some of the blanks that they're going to have. Right. And I felt if they didn't have this, that, oh my God, they're going to be so clueless by the time we get to the end of the July. Blindness itself, meaning, you know, rehearsing it like that and performing it like that every night, in self sounds terrifying to you too but i'll well i'll tell you what when i got over the heebie-jeebies of it it was totally liberating because i didn't see anybody do anything i didn't have to watch audience members <laughs> and watch them funnel with the program or or do whatever or turn away or turn down as if they weren't or were not listening uh, i didn't have to deal with any of that so it was totally freeing and i could totally live in the text in the moment in a way that i may have not have been able to if i could really see all those audience members. So it was, I, I would recommend if anybody playing ham, go do it blind, man. Do it. Do it do that sounds it. amazing. Yeah. Klopp says of Mother Peg, you know, in the play, it was yeah. once their neighbor, you know what she died of, Mother Peg? Of darkness. I mean, I don't know whether I wouldn't be scared of dying of darkness. Well, that's because what Ham didn't do, the backstory I had for Ham was he was just like many of these rich individuals who, when they see that there's a problem with the world, they start to gather resources. Urgh. They know they're going to need that. Right. And then they could sell it for high value because other people are going to need it. What happened with, with COVID? Sure. People that were yeah. hoarding resources yeah. and they sold them for 300%. So that's what he did. And it was gas for the light. So the reason why Mother Peck darkness is so I didn't give her any gas. And that's something that Ham feels regret. He does have that aspect of humanity in him where he realized he did make some very big mistakes in the way he dealt with and treated people. And that gave me a, I think as an actor, probably one of our best tools is vulnerability because as human beings, we're just vulnerable species. We are vulnerable species. And so that was an aspect. Only for a, an instant would he show it and then gone. But that's all we need. It's all the audience needs. But that's who Ham was within the context of my backstory. Because we did an interracial thing, right? So I said, if I'm going to be Ham, I'm a black actor, I want my parents to be 
mixed. Uh-huh. I don't want my parents right. to be one black, one white. And instead of having another black man as my parent, since I am black man playing that character of Ham, we need a black woman. And I'd never seen a black woman play the role of Nell. And so I had a good friend, Patrice Johnson, who I was able to get. And Kieran O'Reilly was the director, knew her as well, was really psyched about. And Patrice is like this big. So she fit perfect. Right. <laughs> and she was hilarious. And she stole the show every Did she really? Yeah, she got all the laughs. She's only on stage for 10 minutes. I saw a Beckett production. I saw a, a, a production of that in a, in an East German nunnery that Beckett directed. San Quentin Prison Company. Uh, oh wait, I think I may have a who played who played Clove. I think I, I may have I a. Don't, there's don't, a black and white version of it on YouTube. Uh, yeah, that's right. Aspect. That's probably right. Yes, uh, I'm trying to remember who played who played Ham. I, I'm afraid I can't remember the names. It's on a poster I have somewhere back at my mom and dad's house. Anyway. I'm not, I'm not going to keep you too long, John, because no, you're so generous with your time. And I, I'm really intrigued reading about you, about the way in which the work you do and some of the parts you play are in dialogue with each other. Mm-hmm. I, one of the things I find most impressive about the many things I find impressive about you, as we've already established, is this idea that it's always a conversation, it feels like, between some of these parts you played and talking about Beckett, who I feel was in great conversation, dialogue with Shakespeare. Yeah. There's so many aspects of, of Shakespeare's plays that leap out to me as Beckettian. Yeah. yeah. Oh, King yeah. Lear has got so and much the closest connection, right? right? Which Ian yeah. Cott famously made that connection between Beckett and, 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 and Lear. But mm-hmm. you talked explicitly about dialogue between two of your characters. You played... And I wish I'd seen this. You played the Emperor Jones, again, an yeah. uh, Irish rep, Eugene O'Neill's yeah. Emperor yeah. Jones. And you talked about being in dialogue with Joe Mott, who you were playing in yeah. Iceman Cometh. Iceman Cometh, yeah, yeah. Because both African-American characters mm-hmm. in these two O'Neill plays, mm-hmm. same author. What I wanted to know about the dialogues was, how does that work? Do you is it just an internal conversation? Do you speak it out loud? Do you read it? How does it work in your brain? It, it, it works on two ways. It is an internal conversation, and when I'm alone, is it can be an out loud conversation. Now, not only with those two characters, but now I'm doing a dialogue with a fellow and audience, and usually it's just the basic questions like why, but it has to come from the character's perspective to explain yourself to me why you did this what was the cause how do you feel and the exercise is merely just to get into a Q&A with another character from another play because there are so many similarities to the characters that I play yes. in some respects particularly if they're from the Shakespearean canon but it allows me to interrogate my characters with an old character to a new character. Mm. And typically, like when I did it with Joe Mott, it was interesting because as it is with Shakespeare, and you know this, you start to see in these Shakespeare plays some of the same constructions of characters, scenes, uh, moments of language. Claudius is an echo of about five different Absolutely. And that's the beauty of working through the canon, back and forth and playing with the canon. It's like, I've seen that before. Yeah. I That's over here. That's over here as well. Oh, I think I have an idea because I've encountered this before. So it's the same thing with the two characters talking to one another. And when I did it with O'Neill, 
And since O'Neill had written those two characters, one was the future of the other. So sure. Joe Mott wishes he could be Brutus Joe. He could be that powerful, that singular, that definitive, that strong. But Joe is living in a society that will not allow him to do that. But Emperor Jones was living in a society that he demanded he was able to do that. So he took what Joe always wanted. So Joe's questions to is like, how did you do that? How did you get so much agency? What did you do? Because I am stuck in a world where if I did anything like you did, they would kill me. And so that's an open question. I don't have the answer to that, but that's a question that Joe would ask Emperor Jones. Yeah. And then Emperor Jones would ask back to Joe, why are you so small? Why are you in fear? And maybe Joe could, maybe Emperor Jones could say to Joe, I started off where you were and I ended up here. And Joe's like, well, how'd you do that? Teach me how to do that. But they see a likeness in one another. It's just an exercise which allows me to understand the characters better. And why not? I mean, listen, you're just like me. You know, you're a beast of the theater. And so why not look at your body of work and find which characters are willing to have a conversation with one another? I try not to forget what I did. And what I mean by that is not necessarily lines, but roles that I play. And that helps me remember that. It's something I can interchange at any given time. And so now that's why I'm doing this with Othello, who's very different than Claudius. To me, there are two characters that have some similar, like what Claudius wants to know about. Othello is like, well, how'd you, why'd you do it? Like, I used poison. Like, sometimes the conversations can be really weird. Yeah. But it is like, did you get away with it? <laughs> because I used something like, you know, fentanyl or whatever, it wasn't traceable. I got power and love. Yeah. You're about to kill the thing you love. That's fucked up. We need to talk. You know what I mean? <laughs> so there's this, so and you great. could go on and on, but the exercise is just so you can at least live in the character yeah. from another perspective. It's magnificent. It talks again to the subterranean access to you. Mm. These things. It's so extraordinary. Okay. Nearly, nearly, nearly done. I said earlier, like, just shut up, shut the fuck up and do what's in front of you. And once you get me going and talking, I'm drinking this water like it was gin. <laughs> so be gin. I wish you yeah. uh, Last two questions. Very simple. What pisses you off about it? Lack of diversity. I, I think diversity matters and diversity of thought matters. Theater should be more like the community that we live in. Right. Because if I hadn't gone to see that August Wilson play, and seen myself on stage, I don't know if I'd be an actor. Right. Right? I mean, obviously, I decided to go, so I went, and I was fortunate in seeing what I saw because it looked a lot like me and made me dream about doing that. So it made the journey accessible. And I think there are a lot of people out there that want to do what we do, but they can't see themselves represented in what we do. And it looks like they go to the theater, and they don't see themselves represented and it's a huge, it's like, okay, I have no value here. I'm not considered here. I'm not important. Because that's what they're telling me by the way they're doing what they're doing. They're saying, you don't matter. So whether you come back or not, we don't care. And that's hurtful. So I think theater can do a lot in opening up its doors 
with diversity. I'm not just ta I'm talking about gender diversity, LGBTQ, disabled. I mean, we need to start making theater accessible to all. We all need to find a way to all be on stage together. Now, Sam Gold has done some really interesting things where he's brought disability to the stage, disabled actors and non-disabled actors, and like, work it out, you know? And sometimes the payoff is really wonderful, and sometimes the payoff is, sometimes there isn't a payoff. It's like, well, that threw me out of the play. But it was an effort to normalize the situation. Yeah. And the normalization may not happen today, tomorrow, five years from now, but it will happen. But it won't happen if theater tends to look at itself as a place where diversity is not valued. So that pisses me off. Do you feel like it's changing? Has it changed? I do feel like it's changing. We've huge upheaval, right? Yeah. The pandemic, all we those pre precipitating events. We did. The murder of George Floyd. And it felt like there was a real reckoning coming. It, yes. This, but it's kind of slow. We've tripped tripped a little, right? Because there was a moment during that time where it was politically correct as well as expedient to to make those changes yes. and shifts. But now there's a little blowback from those changes yes. and shifts, right? Like, wait a minute, what did we do? Or why are we doing this? Or this is not how we used to operate. Well, we, we, we got to get back to what we did before, not move into this new terrain or new territory. So there are those people that are trying to pull back or you know, pull the reins on the horses that have been running. And that was to be expected. But I do think there has been lots of change. Like, look at these plays on Broadway. Like, think about Broadway now. They're in the best act actor category. There are four black actors. Yeah. This is like never happened before. Right. And I've seen all the performances and great performances. Right. You know what I mean? Right. This is not glad handing. So, so that's important. And oftentimes off-Broadway leads this kind of a charge. I find more diversity off-Broadway than I do on Broadway, maybe because Broadway kind of sticks with musicals or whatever the case may be. But I do think that it is changing. More change, absolutely necessary. I want to be in a play where all the groups that I've talked about are represented on one stage doing one play. And in administrations too, right? Well, yeah. the theater, that's how it changes. Well, the administration, I've said, it's easy to bring diversity in the door by saying, okay, we're going to pick all these people and bring them into play. But we need to have diversity in the upper echelons of these institutions and the board groups, yeah. right? So I've encouraged, you know, I've been asked to sit on some boards. I've encouraged boards to look for more diversity because right. that's where decisions are made. Right. And without that, you can do all the diversity you want on the stage, but without it happening in the board group, yeah. you know, it doesn't fully yeah. work. And I think bad theater. And it happens, right? Because it just hasn't been thought of. The hiring process was not well thought of. People doing things that they probably shouldn't be doing. You know what I mean? And you yeah. see that. And yeah. and, and, and I, I'm not passing any judgment on it, but it's like, we all know when we see it and why it happens. So we need to kind of work towards doing a better job in selecting directors and actors and production. Like giving that a little bit more thought, not just picking the thing because it was successful on Broadway or, or it's going to make us some money or, you know, and I also think like getting stars to do theater because it becomes this commercial enterprise where capitalism becomes so important. We need mm -hmm. to make money. So we got this star, these two stars to kind of drive the show also needs to be looked at. That kind of upsets me in the sense that other good working class actors are kind of left out 
who may be able to do a better job in the part and for the play and being a leader. Often I've heard of stories where, you know, you may bring a star or a celebrity in and it just messes up the flow. They don't want to be the leader. They will want to lead the cast to creating a good production. There's so much handling you have to do of this individual that you can't focus on the rest of the cast. So there's an upsetting of the balance and that's not good either. So, you know, those things, they exist. And, sure. uh, and I think because theater is becoming a more and more commercial, that maybe sometimes those things have to exist. So if they do, they just need to be more thought out, more planned. I was in a production with a, with a major, major individual and it made me want to give up theater. And I said to myself, that's the last play I'm doing. It was that difficult of an experience and it should never, it should never be, but it was. Then what, what do you still, what do you still want from the theater? Well, I do want that representation of diversity. I want that to be normalized. Yeah, yeah. I can't say about the roles and plays that I want to do because I've never been the person to say, I want you to do this play because I want to play this role. Uh, I've never romanticized anything that way. And that's not the way to get good work out of me. It's better if someone comes to me and says, I think you'd be uh, right for so-and-so. And I don't even know why. That's a scary journey to take. But right? I'm willing to go on that journey. And that's much more beneficial to me as an artist to show that picking than cherry picking. I've done it before. I think I forced someone to make me Hamlet and it was it was like, you know, all actors talk about, oh, when they, they had this experience on working on Hamlet, they were reborn. It was like, uh, oh, I had this experience. It was amazing. It was just there's just something that speaks to me. It is it's the great role of a lifetime and I don't think I'll ever reach that height. I didn't have any of that <laughs> at least pure depression. It was pure depression, really? sadness, and like, what am I doing? Why did I do this? And like, this is not what I should be doing. It, it was a bad production. I mean, certainly from my perspective. Wow. And, and it was my only shot because I wanted to do it. It was because I pushed it too hard and I should have waited for someone to come to me and say, John, I think I have a Hamlet that you would fit perfectly in. And then I would have been terrified and then I would have gone on that journey and I would have reached those heights that other actors always talk about. When they talk about Hamlet, I say I could talk about Othello to you in those terms, but my Hamlet experience was, I was just like, I want to slip my wrist. This is not, and this is, has nothing to do with the character or the play. It's just like, this is not the experience I'm supposed to be at. <laughs> this is not the play I should be in. Well, for those of us who envy the living legend that is John Douglas Thompson. This is incredibly comforting to know that Hamlet I did the worst was a Hamlet total bust. In America. Yes, <laughs> total bust. I did the worst Hamlet in the United States of America. There are some Look it up. Look it up. comfort, uh, but some, I'll take them. Some, there may be some scenes on YouTube. Look it up. You can see it. <laughs> Factual proof. It's going to keep me going when I'm thinking, <laughs> reading more of your press cuttings. John, I cannot thank you enough for talking mm. to me. It's a huge inspiration to oh, talk to you. you. I don't really, really mean that. Thanks. And it's about time I saw you on yes. stage. It's about time we did a play. We should do a play. Well, we should talk to Aaron. Is there a, is there a classical play that you'd want to do where we could... So, I've talked to her so about Richard II and alternating Lingbrook uh, and Richard. Not night after night, but let's say... A week, do a week run, and then switch. You know what I mean? 
I've been attracted to that by and having two people alternate. I've always wanted to do Vanya alternating Vanya and Astroff too. Mm. It'd be fascinating. I think you've got the most extraordinary version of both of those characters yes. in you, and I think I could too. We should definitely, whether it's these projects we're talking about, or we should definitely put the bug in Aaron's ear that we'd like to work together, yes. and she may have something that we've never even thought of. Totally. And she's like, I think you guys would be good in that. I don't want to tell you guys why, but will you do that? And that'll be a really fruitful experience. Done. And done. And done. Thanks. You're welcome. Thanks. He's so great. Thank you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Well, I just loved that. That was such a privilege for me to talk to John Thompson. To understand the ways in which we're similar and the ways in which we are unutterably different. And to hear him talk about the experiences that cracked him open as an actor, seeing Joe Turner's come and gone, seeing himself or something of his life, his family life, people who looked like him represented on stage, to hear about the appalling incident that also gave him the sense that he could be an actor if he was emotionally honest about his life. I just found all that absolutely mesmerizing and such a privilege to listen to. And, you know, I felt <laughs> another one of the great privileges of this, of this podcast. I felt like I'd made a real friend by the end of our conversation. We'd obviously sort of orbited each other's lives a little bit, but that conversation made me feel very close to him in all sorts of ways. And uh, I'm so grateful to John for giving me the time. And it is about overdue that I saw the hurricane of his talent on stage because I, I, I've heard so much about it and I am ready, or indeed to act opposite him. I'll just leave that with any uh, directors or casting directors out there, sure. Oh, my, my guest next week is another force of nature. He is the brilliant British stage film and TV actor, Dominic West. You are not going to want to miss a minute of West. <laughs> he... He is a carnival of fun. Um, Stage Door Johnny is an off-script production. Thank you to Louise Berry for terrific exec producing. Thanks to Acast for all your podcast support. Thanks to the brilliant uh, Ben Backhouse to, for being my producer. 
And thank you to the musicians, Iggy Cake for writing and playing the theme tune. Thank you to Phoebe Cake for singing it. Thank you to the stage manager for your dulcet tones. And thank you to all of you for listening. Please, 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 please try and support the theatre. It's never been in a trickier spot. And now is the time to reaffirm the sense that being in an audience, seeing our collective humanity represented on stage is a really meaningful experience for us. It reminds us of of what connection is about, human connection, and how we make sense of the mystery of our lives. So please, if you can see a play, jump at it. Stage, stage, stage door, jump.